I had all these lines in the sand that I drew for myself that I really believed. And if, if you could have given me a lie detector test that first time that I, that I got high um, and, and fast forward to the first time I got drunk and, and the same thing, you could have given me a lie detector test and I would have passed and said, this is as far as I'll ever go. I'm a good person. I come from a good family. I'll, I'll drink occasionally. I'll smoke weed because it's natural and that's it. What kept happening though, in spite of myself, is that those lines in the sand that I had drawn I would look back and I'd realize I just crossed one and I would not know how it happened because it wasn't conscious. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, lords and ladies. That was the voice of Mr. Howard B. that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And we are going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first. This episode is brought to you by Diane Z. Diane Z went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the Donate tab, and she made a contribution. Thank you so much, Diane Z, for your generosity. This episode, Miss Diane, is for you. Now, I am very thrilled, I'm happy, I'm honored to be the chairperson, if you will, for this meeting between meetings, and I am privileged to serve all of you that are listening in. So, once again, I've said this on the past few episodes, but just in case you didn't hear, on August 30th, we are going to be having a shindig, and that's called Sober Speak Live. In other words, we're going to be putting on an event basically like we do on Sober Speak itself, but it's going to be like there's going to be a people out there watching. And I'm going to have Mr. Jimmy D come in. Once again, Jimmy D is on episodes 54 and 55, if you had never heard him before. And uh, we're going to have him there. And if you want the information about this, go to our website, SoberSpeak.com. And uh, it gives you basic information like the address, time, date, location, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's going to be on, like I said, August 30th, 7 p.m. at the Grace Avenue United Methodist Church in uh, the city of Frisco, Texas. I realize most of you are not 
in this area. When I say this area, the Dallas, Texas area. And um, but for those of you who uh, are and can make it, we would love to see you out there. Uh, the event is free. There's no cost to it. I'll probably pass a basket at the end of the meeting just to cover some expenses, but uh, there's no charge for the event. All right. So, Miss Maria, Maria R was in the secret Facebook group this week. And by the way, if you want to join that, once again, I'm at John, J-O-H-N at SoberSpeak.com. And, you know, there's another reason you may want to join the Facebook group. And uh, I'm not sure I've been talking about this, but if I can figure out a way that I feel comfortable uh, live streaming the uh, Sober Speak Live event on August 30th. I may do that, but I've just got to feel comfortable with it. And the place that I, the, the location, if you will, where I would uh, live stream that would be the Sober Speak secret, or as my friend Dave calls it, the Sober Speak super secret Facebook group. And so if you want to get in that, just send me your email associated with your Facebook account, and I'm more than happy to get you in here. But uh, nonetheless, getting back to Miss Maria in the secret Facebook group, she posted this week in the Facebook group something that caught my attention, and it is a passage from the 12 and 12. And uh, here is the part that she had written that kind of gave her what she called goosebumps, and it says, here we experience, and by the way, this is when it says here, it's talking about, this is all in regards to the 12th step of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says, here, we experience the kind of giving that ask no rewards, the kind of love that has no price tags. And she put after that, goosebumps. I'm assuming that was hers. I don't think Bill Wilson wrote goosebumps, but nonetheless, um, it's the kind, what is this? This is the kind of work, the 12-step work, that will not bring me fame. It's not going to bring me fortune. It's not going to bring me prestige. However, through the 12-step work that I do in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and other, and other kind of giving, it doesn't have to be just in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but... Um, through that work, I am able to tap into that quite whisper inside me that says, this is doing the right thing. You know, I was thinking about it when I go back and reflect on the times in my life that really, uh, I guess what you would say matter. I never think about those times I received a big bonus at work or the times I received some sort of prestige or recognition, um, I always think about those times that by God's grace, I was able to get out of my way for a few moments and be helpful to another human being. Those have been the moments of my life where I, when, when, I, when I heard that still, small, quiet voice inside me say, as you serve the least of these, you serve me. Now, with that being said, you would think that having that knowledge, uh, that would prompt me to jump out of bed every morning and begin to help other people immediately without even thinking about it. But truth be told, 
I struggle mightily on a daily basis to get out of myself and think about what's best for others and best for everyone involved, not just me. I struggle with hiding knives in my words with those people who are close to me sometimes. In other words, nobody else would be able to pick it up, but they know that there's knives in those words. And I'm not proud of that. And I wish I weren't that way sometimes. But that's why I keep coming back to Alcoholics Anonymous, because I have to keep practicing on those things and trying to better myself and trying to live this spiritual life. And this is the full passage that Maria posted. It said, The joy of living is the theme of AA's 12th step, and action is its key word. Here we turn outward toward our fellow alcoholics who are still in distress. Here we experience the kind of giving that asks no rewards. Here we begin to practice all 12 steps of the program in our daily lives so that we and those about us may find emotional sobriety. When the 12th step is seen in its full implication, it is really talking about the kind of love that has no price tag on it. And that is from the 12th step of the 12 and 12 if you want to go read that for yourself. I'm sure glad Maria posted that in the um, uh, Facebook group. All right, Facebook group, I should say. What did I say, group? I don't know what a group is. But nonetheless, for those of you who are not located in the United States of America, and even for some of you who are located in the U.S., I don't know if you saw this. It was a recent, uh, they had a blackout in New York City recently, where all the lights went out and it was all over the television. And, you know, there was a lot of hubbub about it and uh, what caused it and, you know, what the people did during the blackout. And uh, nonetheless, it reminded me of, of a time that my son came up to me. And this was about three or four years ago now. He came up to me and he said, hey, dad, can you tell me what a blackout is? And I said, blackout? Well, son, sure I can. Why do you ask me that question? And he said, well, Dad, I was watching Phineas and Ferb, the cartoon, and uh, there was a blackout in the tri-state area where all the lights went out. And I thought, oh, blackout. That's how most people think of the word blackout. And it's just kind of how my mind processes things like the word blackout. Now, when I thought of blackout, I would think of, oh, well, you know what a blackout is. I don't have to explain it to you what a blackout is. You're listening to this podcast. But anyway, it was just kind of interesting to me when I saw that on the news recently. Um, Charlie wrote in last week, and I wanted to bring this up. And I read it during listener feedback, but I didn't really dive into it. And I started thinking about it more throughout the week. And Charlie wrote in, he wrote a whole bunch of things. But one of the passages from his uh, uh, email is it said, I haven't gone back past December 18, but I absolutely love listening to Ricky R. and Gary K. In fact, I have a sponsee that I am FaceTiming with tomorrow. He lives in Phoenix and I live in Kansas for the summer. 
and we will listen to Ricky R's episode about steps three through 12. And it just occurred to me that, oh my goodness, uh, people are using this podcast, or at least this gentleman is, and that's why I'm bringing it up. I want to know if you're out there and you're doing the same thing. I would really like to hear about this, but people are using this podcast as a kind of a, a study tool, if you will, uh, almost like you listen to a speaker meeting and then you take the bits and pieces out that make sense to you and try to apply them to your life uh, in the steps, like Ricky R's step, uh, steps three through 12. And I just thought that was absolutely fantastic. And so if you're out there uh, and I haven't heard from you and you're doing something like that, please let me know. Um, I sure would appreciate it. All right. Now, on to Mr. Howard B. And we are entitling this episode, I Kept Crossing Invisible Lines in the Sand. And I think a lot of you will be able to relate to that. Howard B. has been sober since June 16th of 2011. Uh, He talks about a term called the addiction of validation, which I thought was very interesting. He's going to talk about growing up as a military brat. Uh, He has a really uh, funny story, at least in my opinion, about uh, fake weed and what he called leprechaun juice. (laughs) Uh, He's going to talk about his turning point and getting sober. Um, We discuss uh, when he felt the presence of God in his life, the amends process, and his experience with the fourth and fifth step, and so much more. So everybody, enjoy Mr. Howard B. I know you're going to, and we'll have some uh, listener feedback at the end of this. Adios. Okay, everybody. So today... We are sitting here with Mr. Howard B. And I say we are sitting here. We're actually in two different locations. You're out in the LA area, right, Howard? That's right. South Bay, Los Angeles. So, Howard, to begin with, why don't you go ahead, give your, uh, you know, just say your name and then give your sobriety date if you wish, please. Yeah, sure thing. So my name's Howard B. And uh, my sobriety date is June 16th, 2011. So I just celebrated eight years about a week ago. Wow. Well, happy birthday, Mr. <laughs> Thank Howard. You. Good timing. Good, good timing. So just so everybody knows how I came across Howard, there's a gentleman uh, who has communicated with me consistently, uh, both on our, our email system and, and in the, uh, the Facebook group that we have. And uh, his name is Jonathan. And Jonathan reached out to me, and he got me in touch with Howard. And so how do you, how do you know Jonathan, Mr. Howard? So without, uh, without going into too much detail uh, and breaking anonymity, Jonathan's son actually is an alumni of a program that I also went through and now run. Um, it's a recovery program called New Life House um, that's out here in the South Bay of Los Angeles. And so, uh, so that's how I've known him through that. And he's been a big fan of, of this podcast for a while and has been talking to me about it. And that's how we got connected. Great. Well, I am certainly glad to have you here. So well, let's just go ahead and jump right into your story. So, I, first of all, I believe you grew up as as I did, actually, like a military brat. Is that okay? is that correct? That is correct. I never lived in one place for more than two, maybe three years max at a time. Were you like, like all over the United States? Did you go abroad? So, yeah. So, I was born in South Carolina. 
Um, and I spent, I'd say the first 10, 11 years of my life, uh, across the United States, Alabama, Hawaii, California, Arizona. And then I moved, um, I moved overseas, uh, right at the beginning of middle school. So I lived in, uh, first Italy and then, uh, Germany and then Japan actually. So I did the, the whole, uh, axis of evil tour <laughs> and, um, and so I did, uh, you know, went to all, all three different countries. It was an amazing experience. Also an amazing experience for a blossoming alcoholic. Um, and uh, then I moved back to the United States, back to California. And I've been here, been in California ever since. So you mentioned uh, some experience for a blossoming alcoholic. So that sounds like uh, you were doing a little bit of underage drinking at the time. Is that correct? Oh, so yeah, absolutely. So um well, and it's interesting, right? Because for me, obviously, alcoholism, alcohol is very involved in alcoholism. But, but you know, through through the 12 steps, what I kind of got to see is that alcoholism and the, the, the spiritual malady was alive and well way before I ever picked up a drink, right? And so I didn't, I think I first started experimenting with drugs and alcohol when I was, I don't know, maybe 13 and, and then didn't really get heavily into it until like 15 or 16. Definitely had some experiences along the way. But but um, even before starting drinking and using, the the great thing for a young alcoholic about moving around is that you get to reinvent yourself as often as you like. And so I would go somewhere and I would put on one of about a million different masks and I would become who I thought you wanted me to be. Um, and my first addiction, you know, way before drugs and alcohol was validation and really anything outside of myself to try to make me feel whole. And so I would go somewhere. Let me slow you down there a little bit because I've, I've never heard some, you know, I hear a lot of things on this podcast and, and I hear a lot of things in meetings, you know, over the years, but I've never heard somebody mention the addiction of validation. Can you dive into that a little further? Absolutely. Well, so for I guess for me it's um when you when you, when I think about when I think about my life and when I think about alcoholism prior to to the relief that the twelve steps gave me, it was always a sense of right not being okay as I am, not being comfortable in my own skin, always being keenly aware that I was an outsider looking in, and so for a long time I believed that the quote unquote the problem. Um, was that, you know, I, uh, there was something wrong with me in the sense that if only I could get you to like me and if only I could get you to validate me and accept me, I would be okay. And, uh, and what I've kind of since learned is that that was, um, that I was living under the delusion that if, if I could only convince you that I was worthy of, of love and involvement and affection and all those different things that I myself would begin to believe that about myself. Um, and so before I found drugs and alcohol, I spent a lot of time um, trying to become whoever I thought the people around me wanted me to be thinking that that would fix me and make me okay. Um, and that was my first like, and it was much less effective than drugs and alcohol, but that was my first solution, right? Was, was that, was the validation of others and the approval of others. Very interesting. That's a good way to put it. Okay. So I got you a little off track there. So that was one of your first <laughs> uh, addictions, the, the validation, but then sure. it kind of, like you said, it didn't work as well, if you will. Uh, then it kind of turned into the drugs and the alcohol. Um, yeah. was there, were there phases? Is there some turning point where it really took off significantly somehow? So yes and yes to both of those. Um, there was definite phases, you know, obviously I started, uh, I think my first experience with alcohol is I, uh, a kid 
when I was in like middle school, another kid brought a flask to school and I took a couple sips from it and it was kind of, you know, nothing really happened. That was that. And then a few years later, I had a, a, one of my buddy's older brothers sold me some fake weed and I, uh, and I rolled it up into a big thing of computer paper and tried to smoke it and told all my friends that I got high, but really didn't get high, but thought it made me look cool. And, and that was kind of it for a little bit. And then uh, I got me and a buddy, I stole all my parents' alcohol and I poured it in a wa- mixed it all in a water bottle and uh, poured green food coloring in it and drank it and called it leprechaun juice and, and <laughs> didn't get drunk, but my face turned green and my buddy got in a bunch of trouble. And so it was very like a not a glamorous introduction to the worlds of, of drugs and alcohol, right? Like I didn't have, uh, you know, up until I was about 16, it was just kind of me muddling through being a dumb kid and, but still intuitively knowing that I wanted to change something about how I felt, right? Like I never had the experience and, and I come from a family where I never saw, um, drug or alcohol abuse. I mean, my, my mother is a first grade teacher still to this day, bless her heart. She's the sweetest lady in the world. My father, um, was a career military man. He's out of the service now, but I mean, the two of the most loving, uh, accepting people you could ever met, ever meet. And, um, so I didn't have like a barometer of how to get, how to get messed up and how to get drunk and loaded. But when I was about 16, to answer your second question, I had an experience, um, that was kind of like that turning point. And so, you know, I'd, I'd obviously been doing my experimentation up to that point and, and the spiritual malady was really alive and well. And I, I, um, there, the first time, so the book, the book talks about, right. This, the, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it, it mentions the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once when we take a, just a couple of drinks. Right. And so, um, I, I had my experience with that when the first time that I smoked pot, actually. Well, I, I, like I said, I tried it before, but the first time I really smoked it and some, there was, you know, there was another kid in the car who was a lot older than me and he kind of like showed me, you know, how to do everything and how to, how to roll a blunt. And, um, and I remember sitting there in the back of this car and we were, you know, we're sitting there and, you know, rap music's playing and he's older and like, he's showing me how to do everything. And I'm like, man, I feel so cool right now. I feel like I'm, I'm sitting inside of a, a movie about gangsters and I'm not, you can't see, you know, I know they can't see me in a podcast, but I'm the farthest thing from a gangster. I'm like a, a, a middle-class white kid that mommy and daddy took care of his whole life until he got sober. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, but I'm sitting there and I have this and, and we spark it up and I'm like, Oh my God, this, this is it. And I, and I, and I get high for my first time, like properly high. And I remember, um, still to this day, you know, still so, and that was, that must, what, that's gotta be all, you know, 15 years ago now, a long time ago. And so I, uh, I remember still to this day, the feeling of all of a sudden that voice inside of my head, that, that constant sense of like, how do I look right now? Like, what do these people think of me? Like, am I sitting the right way? Am I talking the right way? Am I, am I acting the right, like it all went away. And, um, and I got that, that sense of ease and comfort that the big book describes. And after that, it was just, okay, this is it. This is what I was missing my whole life. This is like the secret sauce. This is the the punchline to the cosmic joke that everyone else knew that I didn't. And this is how I'm going to get through life. Um, and that was <laughs> that was when it was off to the races, and it and it never slowed down until I got sober from there. So you went. By the way, I've never heard somebody talk about fake weed and leprechaun juice. <laughs> <in the same laughs> <sense. laughs> <laughs> like I said, it wasn't glamorous, man. I was not a cool. Uh, I was not a cool, common, collected. I was just 
trying to find something to get me out of myself. <laughs> That's great. All right, so 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 we go from fake weed, leprechaun juice, up to that point of having that sense of ease and comfort. Uh, that's at around sixteen. So you still had a couple of years to go in uh, high school. Um, how, how was high school? Did you go to college after that? Yeah, so I was. Uh, I always school was always pretty. Uh, always came pretty easily to me. I was fortunate. I, I don't know. I guess fortunate or not, but I, I was able to get through school fine, and so. My um, my drinking and using progressed really rapidly, um, but I was good at kind of keeping a lid on things uh, while I lived at home with mom and dad. Um, and so, you know, they were my parents were very very strict. They were not okay with, you know, even a little bit of weed smoking. They were not okay with. Uh, they didn't make such a big deal about drinking as long as I, you know, wasn't drinking and driving. But they still weren't okay with it. And so. You know, I kind of muddled through high school. I, I, I did fine, though, you know, did well in school. I got into a good college. I went to UCSB. Um, and but, but what happened is along the way for those after that first experience, you know, uh, the interesting thing about alcoholism, well, one of the many interesting things about alcoholism is the progressive nature of the disease, right? And so I would, I had all these lines in the sand that I drew for myself, Um that I really believed. And if, if you could have given me a lie detector test that first time that I, that I got high um, and, and fast forward to the first time I got drunk and, and the same thing, you could have given me a lie detector test and I would have passed and said, I, this is as far as I'll ever go. You know what I mean? Like I'm a good person. I come from a good family. I'll, I'll drink occasionally. I'll smoke weed because it's natural and that's it. You know, I'm never going to put, I'm, I mean, the idea of putting a needle in my arm was, was not even like on the table, but I'll never like, I'll never do drugs, right? I'll never do a drug and I'll never, you know, I would never commit a crime and I would, I'm, I'm going to go to call. Like it was just out of this idea of who I was. And I really, really believed that stuff. And what kept happening though, in spite of myself is that those lines in the sand that I had drawn, I would look back and I'd realize I just crossed one. And I would not know how it happened because it wasn't conscious. But, you know, one day I just, well, well, my buddy had this drug and I'd never done it before. And, you know, that's not, a, it's not, this one isn't that big of a deal because of X, Y, and Z. And I'd have a really great rationalization for it. And, and the next thing I knew I'd crossed one more line. And, um, and that happened throughout high school for those last few years until uh, my senior year of high school, I found myself, um, you know, smoking heroin for the first time when I was 18. And I mean, this is only two years after the first time that I that I got high. And again, if you would have talked to me two years before, I would have sworn up and down that I would never dream of like taking a prescription drug or a hard drug. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying heroin and, and, uh, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big thing. I, I kind of like, like I said, I made it through high school and I got to college. Um, but when I got to college, mommy and daddy weren't there anymore and, and they were still footing the bill. But for the first time, you know, I was around a culture that, that, you know, was a long shot from like the conservative structured environment that I grew up in. And it was very much like kids drinking, waking up in the morning, drinking, get in the dorm room. Everybody had bottles inside of their rooms. Everybody was smoking. And so it was like, uh, I mean, I'll tell you, man, I had the time of my life and I really, the first couple years, it was we talk about it being fun, um, fun with problems and then just problems. You know, it was almost like it took a non-linear progression of in the beginning, it was fun. And then it was a lot of fun with problems. And then I got to college and it was just fun again. You know, it was uh, drinking every single day with people, but it was normal, right? That was part of the culture. Um, and I did all right in school for a little bit. Um, 
and then things started taking a turn for the worse. Um, so yeah. Okay, we'll talk about that turn for the worse there. What what happened there? Well, so again, the progressive the nature of the disease caught up to me. You know, I started doing what we do. I started dealing drugs. I started uh, really kind of living this dream of of adopting this identity of being, um, you know, this uh, uh, I don't know this this wannabe drug dealer and this wannabe you know you know, whatever it was, this whole identity that I, that I adopted that, that really allowed me to, to drink and use full time. Um, and so I really did that. And what, what happened was my schoolwork started taking a backseat pretty quickly. Um, I stopped rich. My my parents were living down in San Diego at the time and I was going to college at Santa Barbara. And so I stopped, um, communicating with my family. I stopped going back down to see them. And I really started, um, while, while still taking their rent checks that they sent me to keep me inside of an apartment, of course. Um, and I really, and I started using harder and harder drugs. And so somewhere, uh, somewhere along the way, you know, uh, you know, to spare, to spare the listeners, like a long drug log, but essentially what happened over the course of a pretty short amount of time is I found myself, you know, a daily intravenous heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine user. Um, and I was, you know, selling drugs to get by, getting fired from every job. Eventually, I got thrown out of school. Um, and finally, I tried to get sober. My idea of sober was um, getting off of the heroin and drinking and taking pills every night. And so I did that for a little while. Um, and then eventually, you know, my family, I, uh, they found out, obviously, tried, I went to a, you know, an outpatient program, you know, tried taking Suboxone. I did that for a couple of years, you know, would get a couple months here and there off of hard drugs, but still drinking. And, uh, and I got a little bit of exposure to AA, but like I was that guy in a meeting that was, you know, nodding off in the meeting, trying to do a four step right after getting high. And so it, you know, nothing really happened until eventually my family, uh, couldn't watch me kill myself anymore. Um, and I'd really kind of burnt everything to the ground and they said, unfortunately, we can't continue to participate in this. Um, you know, we can't, you're on your own. And I, I, of course, threw a temper tantrum and I said, how dear you're killing me? You're starving me. How am I going to eat? And they said, you're gonna have to figure that one out. We can't do this. And so uh, they closed the door on me and they stopped taking my phone calls and they stopped, uh, you know, it, it got really, really dark and really, really ugly. And I remember at the end, um, I was living in an apartment that I was, I was about to be evicted from. Um, I'd gotten fired from, from the last crummy warehouse packing job I had that, you know, I couldn't even manage to do that. I had a number of court cases stacked up, you know, and here I was um, at 22, you know, and if you would have talked to me even four years earlier, talked to anyone that knew me, I was, you know, on paper, I should have been a lawyer or I should have been, uh, you know, I was great in school, very intelligent, very, everyone, you know, it was just like everything going for me and, and all the resources to do it too, right? Like my parents totally willing to put me through college, totally willing to support whatever. So, you know, any, the idea that, that, um, circumstance and look i know there's a lot of a lot of people have opinions on what causes alcoholism for me not saying that traumatic events can't like precipitate alcoholism not saying that you can't go from being a heavy heavy drinker to uh, an alcoholic but when i look at my life and the experience that i had through working a first step i recognize that for me i came out the woman alcoholic you know there was no no event caused it no person did it to me it was just it's just how i'm wired and so um i found myself you know, having gone down this really, this, this path really, really rapidly, 
Um, and, uh, I, I, I had a girlfriend at the time that was also a junkie. Um, we were, you know, kind of turning and burning together and, uh, and everything was, I'd burned to the ground, you know, my about to be evicted, fired from the last job I had gotten thrown out of school. Um, had, uh, court cases kind of stacking up against me, um, out of completely out of money, my utilities getting shut off. And, uh, and then at the last minute, I get a call from mom um, who said, hey, are, are you done yet? And I said, done with what? I don't have a problem. <laughs> and she said, she said, well, if you will agree to go to treatment, um, we'll pay for it. And I said, well, in me, you know, at this time, or, what were you going to say? No, I was pointing. Oh, <laughs> what 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 the listeners not seeing, and I just don't feel like editing this out. But uh, my son actually came in the room, and he didn't know I was recording, and just how we do it around here. And so yep. Howard saw me pointing, and uh, so I just had to tell my son to go back out. So anyway, go uh, ahead, Howard. Sorry no worries. My, my, if you hear the dogs barking, I got that's my pup, so it's all good. Um, but you know, and I and me, of course, at this point in time, like. I, I believe to my innermost self that I don't have a problem with drugs and alcohol. You know, I, the problem is my mom and dad for not continuing to pay my bills. The problem is the college for throwing me out and not being more understanding that I've got it hard. The problem is um, the police officers that just won't give me a break and that are targeting me unfairly and that are, you know, are going after me. And the problem is, uh, uh, you know, my, my job for, for firing me when I really needed that job to, to pay my bills and how dare they and how uncompassionate they were. And, and, uh, and I knew I wasn't an, an addict or an alcoholic because the people I sold drugs to now, those were real addicts, you know, though they were, they had it bad, you know, they came from bad families and they were not as intelligent as I was. And they were, you know, they were, they were drug addicts and alcoholics, but me, I'm, I'm a great kid from a great family. And, uh, and I could never have a problem with drugs and alcohol. I just choose to do this because it's fun. And, uh, and, and so I said to my mom, well, you know, because I don't have a problem with drugs or alcohol, as soon as I get to this place you're going to send me, the doctors will realize it. And the doctors will, will realize that this is a big misunderstanding and that, uh, you know, everyone's just out to get me and, it's, and life is so unfair. And so I said, if, when the doctors clear me to leave, will you guys start giving me money again and start paying for my living. And they said, and my mom said, yeah, absolutely. Sure thing. (laughs) (laughs) Little did I know, little did I know. And so, so I look back on that, right? Because there had been so many situations prior to that happening where, where they tried to help me get sober before they closed the door, right? It wasn't, I obviously I kind of gave the, uh, the abbreviated version, but it wasn't just one day they said, we're done. This was like a year, multiple years of pain and suffering that I dragged them through in the addiction. And so, you know, I, I look back on it now where I, for me, I see it as like, you know, just tangible evidence of God working in my life, right? Tangible evidence that God was doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. And because my moment of clarity wasn't as, wasn't as lucid as recognizing I have a problem and I need to stop. My moment of clarity was just being so exhausted and having no other options that I, I had a temporary window where I accepted help on my terms. And God kind of, went to work and he said, all right, we're going to clean this stuff up. And so, you know, I could tell you a million stories about times that prior to that happening where I almost got arrested with like, you know, 
lots and lots of drugs on me and I would have gotten put in like all these serious things that I, these crises that I narrowly averted. Right. And what I believe is it's because I wasn't ready yet. You know, I wasn't ready and my higher power recognized that. And so when it was time, he, he created this perfect confluence of events, this like, this like a hurricane of, of things all happening at the exact same time where, you know, I got let go from that last job and I got thrown out of school and I got arrested at last. And like all those things happened at the exact same time, right when my lease was about to be up and I had no more money. And so it was like this, uh, this convergence of at the time, what I saw is really terrible luck. <laughs> and, and now I look back and see it's, it was a miracle. And it put me in a position where I was willing to kind of say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give this thing a try. So yeah, so that was that. So let me go ahead and uh, read this and then we'll continue on in just a second. So we'll be continuing our conversation with Howard, Howard B in just a moment. Just a reminder, you were listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www soberspeak.com and you can listen to tons of other episodes for free Uh, you can also find the donate button on our website and you can use that if and only if the spirit moves you to do such please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you the listener sober speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions we are not allied with any sect denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Howard B. All right, so Howard, so you've gotten through that part, and so you went to treatment. How did it end up when you got out of treatment? Well, uh, again, you know, I saw my higher power and at the time I wouldn't have described it this way. Right. Like, so a lot of this vocabulary that I'm using, I've learned through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and, and obviously I'm a big 12 step guy. Um, that, that is how I got sober. I got sober through, through Alcoholics Anonymous in a program called new life house. Um, and so ultimately what ended up happening is I went into a detox, um, and I was there for a few days and, and I kind of just was defeated. And then I went into New Life House, and so New Life House was a was a long term structured recovery community for young men. Um, it, I was surrounded by a bunch of guys my own age. Uh, I was surrounded by uh, guys that were doing the deal. I was encouraged, you know, it was twelve step focused, and so right off the gate, I was encouraged very strongly to get a sponsor. Um, to get to a meeting. And I remember, you know, coming out on the other end of detox. And at this time, again, I still don't identify with being an alcoholic or an addict. And I still don't think I need to get sober, frankly. I think that, you know, drugs and alcohol aren't the problem. But I'm like, I've been kind of beaten into submission enough by life that I realize, oh, and I kind of left this out, but eventually I got um, the court stuff caught up to me. And and in lieu of going to jail, they said, okay, just go to this program instead. And so I had a lot of like support on the front end that I didn't really have any other options. I had no more money. I had, you know, and I remember going to my first AA meeting, like actually sober, right? Because all the attempts at going to AA that I'd had prior to that, which weren't many, I'd, I'd been loaded the entire time. And so I remember my first AA meeting coming out of detox and uh, I go there with the guys in the house um, who are uh, surrounding me and showering me with love and support. Um, and I don't really know how to, how to handle that or deal with that because it's been a long time since I've had anything remotely resembling a healthy relationship with anybody. And, uh, and I, and I go to this meeting and I remember, and I hear them start talking about, you know, 
describe it's an it's an it's a minstag right it's a minstag it's called clark stadium so it's a it's a meeting here in the south bay it's still running been been going long before i got sober and and will probably be going long after i pass away and so um they uh i hear them talking about these feelings of like waking up um with nothing to look forward to other than other than getting loaded and um, being disconnected from everything and everybody and not being able to sleep at night and being constantly filled with fear and feeling profoundly uncomfortable in your own skin, just describing all this stuff. And then I heard them talking about something that came after that and talking about freedom and talking about happiness and talking about um, having a life, you know, uh, worth living and filled with meaning and purpose. And I saw these guys in the light inside of their eyes and, uh, up to that point, while I definitely didn't believe that I was an alcoholic, I did know there was something wrong with me, right? I knew I was deeply unhappy and I, I had kind of come resigned to the fact that if I'm going to get through this world, you know, I'm going to need some additional help with substances and all these other things to make the world more bearable. And I saw these guys describing this way of living um, that that was like free of that. And so I remember sitting in that first meeting and getting this like really powerful sense of hope where it was like, oh my God, maybe I have what they have. Maybe what's wrong with me is what these guys are describing. And it's not that I'm like mentally deficient and that I'm never going to be able to be normal or sane again, but maybe I, maybe this is what I've got this thing. Maybe I am an alcoholic or an addict. And if I am, then maybe there's a way out. Um, and so this was all like, uh, when I mean this like happened in the blink of an eye, it was like, I went from essentially having no desire to be sober or even thinking that I needed to be sober to like, oh my God, maybe the sobriety thing could be like a way out from, from this like pain and suffering <laughs> that I put myself in, you know? What happened to the girlfriend? Oh man. So I, I went into this program and I didn't speak with her for about 90 days. Um, so I would, they, they told me like, look, you need to put this on the shelf for a period of time. You know, you guys were, you know, shooting dope together and doing X, Y, and Z. And I begrudgingly agreed. I mean, I'm, again, I'm giving you a short version. It was a lot more, there's a lot more confrontation around it than that. But eventually I came to say, okay, fine. And it also helped. I didn't really have any other choice, right? It was like, if I wanted to hit the streets, I was going to get locked up for, for bailing on the program <laughs> that I got sent to. But, uh, but, but to be honest, that was really the deciding factor was that I was surrounded by so much love and the environment. New Life House was, I mean, it's, it saved my, it along with AA saved my life without a doubt. And, um, and I was surrounded by these guys that, that, gave me so much hope that I chose not to. But anyways, I, I didn't talk to her for about 90 days. And then at around 90 days, I'd, I'd been working the steps um, and I'd done some work on myself still really early in the process, but I'd kind of come to recognize that if I wanted to live, you know, I probably needed to put that one away and I could see the dynamic and the unhealthiness. And so I, uh, I wrote a letter um, to her to kind of, uh, to end it. And, uh, and say, look, I, you know, I, I, I will always care about you. Um, you all, you played a massive role in my life, but I've got to kind of step away and take care of myself. And I hope you can do the same thing. And, uh, and fast forward a little bit. So, so, and again, I'm giving you the cliff notes version, but, but when I had about two years sober, I tried to make amends to her and, uh, I try, I kind of hunted her down and I reached out to her and she, uh, she wanted nothing to do with me, would not accept my amends. Wouldn't even, wouldn't even talk to me. Wouldn't even 
listen to an amends. And so, you know, I put it on the shelf again for a while. And then at about five years sober, I tried again. Um, and once again, she would not, uh, she had, didn't want anything to do with me. She said, I got in touch with her online. It's like, would you just get, you know, I crafted a whole amends thing. And I said, would you give me 10 minutes on the phone? You know, I want to make this right. Da, da, da. What, what we do when we make amends. And then she said, you know, anything you want to say to me, you can say to me, uh, you can say to me over here through this like messenger. And so I, you know, I did my best to, to make an amends, um, as best you can over, a, over like an email message as opposed to in person on the phone. And, and I've had to kind of make peace with that. And, and, and I know in my heart that I tried to clean it up. Um, and, and, uh, you know, unfortunately we do a lot of damage when we're out there using and, um, and I caused her, you know, where look, we're neither of us was innocent, but, um, but she's, she's having her journey and I only hope and pray that she's kind of found peace by now. So, yeah. Do you know if she's still out there using? I don't know for sure. I suspect, um, you know, I don't know. The last I tried to kind of check up on her was, was a number of years ago and, uh, it didn't appear that she'd gotten sober. Um, but here's one thing I've learned in, in my process of getting sober is that not everyone, I used to think that if someone uses heroin or if someone uses this, then they're, they're an alcoholic, right? And, and the way that I define the term alcoholism is, as the big book describes it like a real alcoholic. That's not, you know, there's some people that are heavy drinkers and heavy users that just aren't real alcoholics. And so uh, I don't, you know, who knows, maybe she was able to, if she was able to make it work, my hat's off to her. (laughs) What I've learned is that that's, uh, I, I know who and what I am. And I know that, um, that I, that I am the alcohol, the hopeless alcoholic that the book describes. And so, so I don't know. I don't know if she ever, I don't think she got sober, um, but I hope she's been able to find some peace. You know, you brought up a subject that, well, let me say it this way. There's a book out there right now that's a very popular book, and, and I get it, and it's all about uh, connections and addiction and how lack of connections causes addiction or yep. is one of the primary purposes of it, I guess I should say. And... I've listened to the author, and and I I really get it, and it all sounds good. But you are like most every person I've ever met in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never had somebody sitting down in a room in AA, and and I, I hear, "Gosh, my family just finally loved me enough uh, <laughs> that I decided to come in here to Alcoholics Anonymous." You know, it's yeah. always just like you experienced. You know, you got basically starved enough uh, and desperate enough uh, to where there was a turning point. And I applaud your parents for doing what they did, because uh, that's tough to do. Oh, yeah. So talk about your parents a little bit. In other words, how how have they been through this? I mean, here you are, right? I mean, you're sure they're, they're, gr- they're growing up and, or, or they're, they're living in just a, you know, kind of average suburban, probably, yep. you know, yep. type of lifestyle. And then all of a sudden you at 16 start going off the rails <laughs> and they have no idea how to handle something. I'm oh, sure they were man. on the internet day and night trying to totally. figure out what do we do about this guy? totally unequipped to deal with it. No experience. Yeah. Again, bless their hearts. I I love them to death and they did the best they could, you know, and they, they, you know what they did? I'll tell you, they did, they didn't do anything wrong because they didn't cause my addiction. 
But what they did right eventually is they reached out to professionals and they got professional help. And, and um, I, I, you know, I want to kind of backtrack to something you said about like connection and, and really like whatever the factor is getting someone sober. And, and I totally agree with you. I think that it's, it's interesting because connection is important in order to stay sober, right? Fellowship is a huge component of staying sober, but especially with young men, right? And that's kind of, so this is what I do professionally also, as well as, you know, having had the experience, but with young men, the reality is that for long-term sobriety and long-term change, there has to be, there has to be behavioral change on a really, really fundamental level. There has to be perceptual changes on a really, really fundamental level. There has to be emotional changes, right? What the book calls is a psychic change, right? And so that what that looks like though, is you have to, it's not as simple as, well, everyone around me needs to love me more. It's, it's much more, I have to radically alter the way that I deal with and live my life. Um, and that's one of the reasons I'm so grateful for New Life House because it, it, it really, it did the emotional work with me. It gave me that deeper, you know, underlying emotional work to deal with like the, and, and look, addiction nowadays, this is a constantly evolving thing, right? So I see, you know, there's so much anxiety, depression, all these other kind of ancillary components that go along with it that have to be addressed and treated. But on a core fundamental level, like what is spirituality, if not the way you interact with the world around you and the way that you treat people. And so it's, it's sure connection is important after getting sober, but there has to be, um, there has to be a lot more than just getting showered with love if, if you want any chance of not just being sober, but of living a good life, you know? Um, and so, so yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. But yeah, so my, my parents, uh, you know, they did the best they could and they eventually reached out for professional help and it was a journey for them. You know, I mean, they didn't know what to do with it, right? They, they were, I, I can only imagine and, and, and making amends to them. Well, let me all talk about that and making amends to them. I got to hear. Um, in some very like real and and um, and and truthful ways, the way that I affected their lives, and so, you know, my mother, bless her heart, she's she like I said, she's a saint, but she's definitely codependent, definitely needs to be an Al-Anon, and doesn't doesn't go to Al-Anon. Um, and my father, uh, you know, when I got sober, was definitely much more of like the disciplinarian and the harder kind of one. And what's interest, it's been interesting to watch because as I've gotten more years sober. And my relationship with them has transformed. And as I've cleaned up the wreckage, I've also watched their lives change a lot. And I've watched my father soften a lot. Um, and I've watched my mother still needs Alan on, but she, like I said, she's a total sweetheart. And I've just watched this kind of transformation there with them and with, and my relation. And I, and I'll tell you now when I got sober, I, 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 you know, vehemently was not a fan of them, um, and blamed them for everything. And now they're they're I, I mean, I cherish the relationships that I have with both of them and, and, um, and so, you know, they really underwent a transformation as I got sober too, because the dynamic shifted, right? No longer was, was I the sick one that was keeping everyone around me sick, but now all of a sudden the attention could move away from me onto other things, onto their own lives, onto their relationship, onto their friendships, onto the, their hopes and dreams, right? As opposed to just like everyone trying to put out the fire that's burning the whole building down that, that was me and my addiction. Um, and so, and it's interesting because I see that right with, with and as I'm, I'm sure you have in, in your years of recovery, but that's what tends to happen, right? We go from being these sources of just like pain and destruction, th- like these tornadoes that we spend through our lives. And, and once we get sober and more important, more than just getting sober, but once we recover and, and do the work, we, it really shifts and, and, um, 
we all of a sudden become a source of strength and support and healing for the people around us. And it's really, it's really cool to, to experience it. And it's also really cool to watch happen in other people. Talk about maybe your first swim through the four step and fifth step and possibly some of your amendments oh, that came through. Sure. <laughs> so the first time I did a fourth step, I wrote like 50 pages, uh, probably 20% of it, which wasn't even true. Um, and I, I did, I did the best I could with what I had. Right. So my first four step I did it probably, I don't know, like 90, a hundred, three or four months sober. Right. And I did the best I could. And it was, it was such an important part of my recovery because it was the first time that I really started like looking at things and taking ownership and peeling back layers of the onion. But it was also like, I, I'm really a, a big fan of the, the saying, right? Like you can't, the, the consciousness that created the problem can't solve it. Right. So a sick mind can't, can't think itself into being healthy. And so at, at, you know, at 90 days, four months sober, you're still really sick. And uh, which again is not to, not to kind of like digress, but that's why I think the idea of like for young men of like short-term treatment is such a joke because it doesn't work. You know, like what's going to happen in 90 days, you're really going to, you're going to take a 22 year old and have them experience a profound, a profound psychic shift. That's going to allow them to live the rest of their life sober and healthy. No way. And so, but at 90 days, I was also in a, in a place where I was willing right? I was willing to do the best that I could. And so I did the best that I could. And I had a fantastic sponsor and I was surrounded by a lot of support at New Life House and people that were kind of like shepherding the way. And so I wrote this like massive fourth step and I dumped everything on there and it was filled. I've since gone back like down the road in sobriety and read it and just laughed at some of the things that I wrote on there that were either exaggerations or they weren't true, but I did the best that I could. And, and I remember going, I went into my fifth step and something, something happened for me there um, where I was doing this, this reading it and, and I would come across these things I'd written, like specifically embellishments. So I'd write these stories about like how I was, you know, I was kidnapped by the Mexican mafia because of all the drugs I was selling or like how I kidnapped another person. Just like crazy stuff. There was just not, none of it was just completely fabricated. <laughs> and I would come across these things that I'd written on there to make myself like look more badass. And I would stop and I would say, and I said to my sponsor, like, you know what, man, like that one that I just read to you, that was a lie. That never happened. Um, and, and so something started shifting and, uh, and I really, I, I went back, I went back home and I did my meditation following the fifth step and, um, and, and a shift had taken place. Right. But I also sat there and there was something I'd left out and I was really unwilling to let go of it. And it, and it wasn't until, um, oh man, probably like 10, 11, 12 months sober that I finally let go of it. And I went to my sponsor and I said, look, I've been, I left this off my fifth step. You know, I've been keeping it and, and here's what it is. And I got some freedom. So I guess, I guess the reason that, that I bring all that up is that I'm a big believer that like we do the best we can with what we have in the moment. And, and you aren't like, I've never done a step perfectly, right? There's never been a step or a process or a piece of like my sobriety that I've done perfectly. But what I've done is I've been willing and I've tried. And so as a result of that, the universe has can my higher power have kind of allowed me to, to make the mistakes that I've made and learn from them and, um, and, uh, and go from there. And, and, uh, and you, you mentioned amends and for, and I guess, the way that the amends tie into that is that amends were really kind of like, whereas I think a lot of people have that burning bush experience with a fifth step. And I don't, again, I don't want to like under like my fifth step was very, very important. And I wouldn't be sober if I hadn't done a fourth and a fifth step, but 
for me where I really had those burning bush experiences and like that, that we taught that you read about in like the, the, in the book that, that you see in like the, the um, appendix two and the varieties is of spiritual experience is um, was in the amends and making my amends was where I really kind of felt the presence of my higher power the most profoundly. And so, um, you know, I've made, I've made a lot of amends. I actually still have a couple at, at eight years. I still have a couple to make, but I've made almost all of them. You know, I'll talk, I mean, so going back to my parents, when I made amends to my father, it was a really powerful experience. You know, I sat there and, and I made this whole amends. And when I'd made it to my mother, it had been very like, here's, here's my amends. And she said, you know what, honey, it doesn't matter. I'm just happy you're sober. I'm just thinking about the future. I love you so much. And I was like, okay, cool. And, th- and it was great, right? I made amends to my father and it went very differently. I, I, I made these amends and he, and he kind of looks at me and he said, and I said, you know, is there anything else? Is there anything else you want to share with me? And is there anything else that I can do additionally outside of the things I've already laid out to make this stuff right? Because I believe in any amends is like a four-part process, right? It's suggesting the harm, suggesting the way you're going to repair it, uh, asking if there's any additional harm, and then asking if there's any other repairs necessitated to amend the relationship and the damage. And so, um, so I, I, I go through that process, and my and I and my dad says, yeah. He said, you've got, I think I had about 10 or 11 months sober when I make it. He said, yeah. He said, what can you do to make it right? He said, nothing. He said, you spent the last decade terrorizing our family. You know, you ruined, you did X, Y, and Z damage. You did this, this, and this. He's like, what do you make it right? He's like, I don't even know if you're going to stay sober yet. You've been sober for like a year. Like, he's like, what you can do to make it right is like, be a good person and stay sober long term. And like, over time, the wounds will heal. And what el- what other harms have you done? And he proceeded to tell me. And it was, uh, it was a really painful is the wrong word, but it was a really honest experience where for one of the first times outside of kind of being confronted with the truth by the people surrounding me that I lived with in an AA, I, I got to kind of come square up with the wreckage that I caused as a result of my drinking and using and like, far be it from like shaming me or being counterproductive. It was exactly what I needed to hear to kind of like solidify the severity of what this thing was. And it, and furthermore, that, that experience right there was, was the first building block being laid for the relationship that I have with my father today, because it was the first time that, that radical honesty came into the picture. It was the first time where it wasn't about looking or appearing a certain way in front of him and where he wasn't so concerned with just not rocking the boat. And as a result of that, um, this, it, it really planted the seed for the relationship that I have today that again, took years to develop. I wasn't someone that I like, got sober and was best buds with my dad at like two years sober. Like it was at like three years, we started getting dinner together after he'd like consistently been making an effort and coming up to the, the program that I wasn't participating, but me being, re- and so it was a long process. Right. But, um, but that was really like the first event that opened the doorway to that. Um, and I've also made a lot of amends that, you know, you hear sometimes I, I hear people talk about, well, we don't make amends to our old drug dealers or we don't make amends that might put us in harm's way. And like, I, you know, tell me where it says that in the big book, you know, that was not the, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I had sponsorship that told me the, the, it's not about us playing God. Like that's what's getting sober was about is not playing God anymore. It's not up to me to, to decide what the re, the consequences of this amends are going to be. It's up to me to make the amends and leave the re, the results up to my higher power. And so I went out and I made a lot of those amends that, that other, I've heard other people direct 
you know, and I've had sponsors say not to do like paying back the money to the drug dealers that I, that I stole from going back to the stores that I stole from and putting myself in, in jeopardy of being arrested and like doing those kinds of things. And, and uh, going back to people that I'd done really terrible, terrible things to, um, and really, you know, life alteringly negative things to hurt them and sitting down across the table from them and taking ownership and, and trying to make things right. And I'll tell you that, um, that as well as a really profound first step experience I had and, and obviously continuing to stay involved, I really credit to, to me a big part of the reason why I'm still sober today. And, and look, eight years is just a start, but, but I also believe that, you know, it's, it's hard to fake it to eight years, right? I, I mean, I believe that about five years too, right? Anyone that comes to me with five years sober, it's pretty hard to fake, fake your way to five years. Um, and so I really do credit a lot of that to the fact that I had great sponsorship and the fact that, you know, New Life House taught me that this is about suiting up and showing up and, and doing the work and not about just kind of like hanging out. And, and for me, that looked like making, um, making those amends. Um, I'm, I'm really passionate about that subject I because I, I, I think it's important, you know. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's just very um, obvious, Howard, that you're passionate about recovery as a whole, um, about making your life right, about doing the best that you can, and uh, I I really have enjoyed um, our time together, and uh, um, I wish you well, my friend. Thank I hope you. we get to meet each other eyeball to eyeball someday here soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you. Now, what I do is I ended up by reading up from page 164 of the big book. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Mr. Howard B., thank you one more time for coming on Sober Speak. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Howard, for your time and your insight. That was most enjoyable. If you're out there and you want to reach out to Howard, reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, and I will get you in touch with Mr. Howard. All right, now on to some listener feedback. Annie K. From Al-Anon writes in, and Annie K. says, Hi, John. I live on Long Island, New York. You don't live in Long Island. You live on it. A bit of local humor. (laughs) I've been in Al-Anon recovery as of February 13th, 2017. I'm fortunate to have a wonderful home group and other groups to attend. My program is a lifeline as I struggle with my loved ones who are afflicted with the disease. I thank you so much for the wonderful podcast and all the wonderful speakers, exclamation point, Annie. Well, thank you, Annie. And I'm glad that you have found a wonderful home group uh, there in your area on Long Island, not in Long Island. Chuck writes in and Chuck says, Hi, John. Discovered your podcast recently after starting a home-based business. I really enjoy it. Thanks so much. I am a grateful, recovered member of AA. Sober date is 5 
15-2005. I'm curious about your secret Facebook group. Can you crack the door for me? Have a great day. Well, has sent an invite out to Chuck. I'm not sure if he's gotten in. I think we kind of went back and forth on email, but Mr. Chuck, you are more than welcome to be in the group. I hope you made it in. If you haven't made it in yet, give me a yell. Let me know. Send me an email. Uh, we'll get it all worked out somehow, some way. Jill writes in and she says, I love the podcast and it is great for my commute to work of nearly an hour and a half each way. Wow. I recently listened to Billy Kay and I love the idea of starting a quote similar non-denominational meeting. Very interesting. As I know what you're talking about. Here in the Frederick, Maryland area, I would love to contact her and see how to start. I have many questions. Thank you for your service and keep trudging. Gratefully, Jill M. Well, I sent Jill's information on to Billy Kay and got out of the middle and I'm going to let them talk. And just in case you don't know what Jill is talking about there, Billy Kay was uh, on the last episode episode actually and she is in Al-Anon but she attends a group called AA I think it's called Big Book Awakenings out in the San Diego area but it's 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 uh, they have I guess chapters or whatever you want to call it um, all across the land I believe and uh, so anyway she uh, and Billy Kate goes to those meetings and she's in Al-Anon but they meet there with alcoholics and all kinds of other folks and uh, the idea is that you just do the work and laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so that's what Jill is talking about there when she has when she says she wants to start a similar quote non-denominational unquote meeting in the Frederick, Maryland area. So if you're in the Frederick, Maryland area, in fact, I'm just thinking of this on the fly, and you'd be interested in uh, joining in with Jill on that, uh, just send me an email and let me know, john at soberspeak.com. Okay, now <clears throat> I'm probably going to mispronounce this name, but I'm gonna try. Mauricio, M-A-U-R-I-C-I-O, Mauricio? Hopefully I'm in the area. Hi, John. I live in Petaluma, California. I am a member of both Al-Anon and ACA. And just in case you're not familiar with ACA out there, that's Adult Children of Alcoholics. Uh, so I have been participating in both of these programs for 12 months and five, respectively. I am working my steps through an ACA sponsor who is a member of all three fellowships, AA, Al-Anon, and ACA. I found out about Sober Speak through Spencer at the Recovery Show. I truly appreciate your podcast as well as all of your guests. Regardless of whether the focus is on AA or other, I always get something good out of the pro the podcast. Well, Mari... Marusio, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Sorry if I butchered it, uh, but thank you so much for writing in. Uh, Shaq writes in, not Shaq the basketball player. It's even spelled in a, in a different way. But anyway, Shaq writes in and he says, I'm assuming Shaq is a he. It's S-H-A-K. So I don't know. Could be either. Who knows? But anyway, hey, John, I actually listened to your podcast from Casablanca, Morocco. I discovered you by listening to an interview from AA Beyond where you were a guest. Been struggling with booze for years, and I still am. 
uh, in and out of AA for a long time. Well, Mr. Shack, I hope that uh, you get in and you're able to get stabilized and get a good uh, uh, solid standing within the program. In other words, just you're able to work the steps and stay sober and get to that spiritual experience for you, my friend. Casablanca. That's so interesting. What's the old uh, film? Uh, uh, oh, gosh, uh, Henry Bogart, uh, Harry Bogart. Uh, what's his name? Oh, I can't remember the line from the movie. I should really think about these things before I started in listener feedback. Nonetheless, Casablanca. And I'm so glad you were out there in Casablanca, Morocco, listening to it. Uh, all right. Annie, Anicia, man, I, all these all these names that are um, I'm having trouble with tonight. Anicia writes in from Down Under, and she says, Howdy, John, or good day. Well, good day back to you, Miss Anicia. Uh, anyway, she says, I've been listening to Sober Speak podcast for the past 12 months, and it just keeps getting better and better. I'm an Al-Anon member, 15-year-plus, who loves both programs. From the get-go, my sponsor encouraged me to attend open AA meetings, and it helped me learn about compassion and alcoholism. She also led me to Al-Anon's Tradition 5. And Tradition 5 is, each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. And in bold letters here, we do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves. By encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. To understand myself and the disease of alcoholism and how it affects me, we read from AA's big book, the AA 12 and 12, and, and our own Al-Anon literature. AA shared their 12 steps with Al-Anon, and that's how I've worked my Al-Anon program for the past 15 years, and for that, I am eternally grateful. I know there are many ways to work a program, but this is how the miracle happened and continues to happen for me and the women that I sponsor. You will be pleased to know Texans have a soft spot in my heart. I started my recovery while living in New Zealand, New Zealand, and my first grand sponsor was a Texan! Exclamation point. Before I planned to move back to Australia, I decided to take myself to the International in San Antonio. Well, you know what, Miss Ananesia? And Anesia, you and I are were at the same conference at the same year because I was down at the San Antonio International. But nonetheless, uh, who knows? We could have run across each other. Um, anyway, she decided. I decided to take myself to the International in San, in San Antonio and spend some time with some fabulous recovery peeps there and in Austin. Wow, what an incredible heart-lifting trips. And upon moving back to Sydney, Australia, I found a fantastic sponsor. American. And boom, you guessed it. Her sponsor is Texan. Laugh out loud. <laughs> My grand sponsor is celebrating her 50th year in Al-Anon this year, and I think she's a legend. I've even sent her some of your Sober Speak links, Gary Kay, as I thought for sure she'd know some of your guests. Sure enough, she does. I absolutely love all kinds of U's there. L-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-U-V. Gary Kay, 
David G, Jimmy D, they really speak to me. Uh, they carry the message very cl- clearly, the solution, and I love that. Glad to hear that you're celebrating in August. And when she says celebrating, she's talking about the Sober Speak Live event with Jimmy D. Uh, and she says, maybe next August I'll make my way to Texas again and join you. Well, we would love to see you, Anisia. Uh, glad you're here celebrating in August. Maybe next August oh, I'll make it my way to Texas again and join you. Thank you for your family and your service and all that you do for fun and free. Love and hugs and fellowship to all, Anisia. And uh, apparently, by the way, Anisia is a Russian name and it's her granny's name, if you're curious, laugh, laugh out loud. So, And by the way, when she says that for fun and for free, I know what she's referencing there, just in case you've never heard Chuck Chamberlain speak uh, and his tapes and the message that he carries. um, I would highly recommend it. If you look up Chuck C., a new pair of glasses and any internet search, you will find it. He is out there. But anyway, thank you so much from writing in from down under Anicia. Magdalena writes in and she says, hi, John. Magdalena. My goodness. I I think I got that name right too. There are no Bobs or Bills or Sues or Janes today. Everyone's making it tough for me. And she writes in and she says, Hi, John. Thank you. I live in Allen, Texas. Well, that's in my neighborhood, Miss Magdalena. And my home group is the Clean Air North group. I know that group, Miss Magdalena. I've been there many times over and I love the Clean Air group. Anyway, she says, I got sober at the Carrollton group. That's where I got sober, Miss Magdalena, at the Carrollton group. Oh, no. Anyway, she says, I love sober life, being awake, and I feel my feelings all the way. It can be exhausting, but I love it. I found Sober Speak after hearing on it, uh, hearing about it from, the Spencer, from Spencer during the, one of his episodes of The Recovery Show. There's The Recovery Show again. I was curious to hear Spencer and his wife speak on your podcast, and that's how I found Sober Speak. I sometimes attend meetings in Frisco's. Maybe our paths will cross one day. Best Magdalena B. Well, Miss Magdalena, I do hope that our cross pass one day. And if you're here in the area and you come up and see us at the uh, live event on August 30th, I would love to meet you eyeball to eyeball. Donna Mack writes in and she says, Hi, John. I live now, Donna Mack. Now, that is a name that I can pronounce. I live in the Tampa, Florida area, Palm Harbor. My home group is seven up at the dry dock in Tarpon Springs. That could be Tarpon Springs. Who knows? I am 90 plus days sober and AA is absolutely what has contributed to my success. My sober date is 331, 2019. I like to listen to podcasts and since in recovery, search for that topic and ran across yours. The stories are enjoyable and extremely helpful. I look forward to joining the, joining the secret Facebook group as well. And Miss Donna is in there. Thank you so much. 
uh, and keep up the great work and support you provide. Donna Mack with Donna Mack in Tampa, Florida. Thank you for writing in. All right, so now Miss uh, Diane writes in, and Diane says, Thank you, triple exclamation point. I listened to your podcast on my way to and fro work. She didn't put fro. I kind of added that on my own. But anyway, she says, Love, love, love your podcast and appreciate what you do for us. I am 10 years sober and still learning from you and your guests. Diane, well, you know what, Diane? I'm sober a little bit more than 10 years sober, but I am still learning from the guests that I bring in here as well. And I review the notes and I try to implement some of the things they bring in here best I can. Uh, But it is just good to rub shoulders with some of these fine people. All right. Let me see here. What do we got next? Uh, Oh, from the Facebook group. Uh, the super secret Facebook group, Whitney and Don posted this. Oh, they were in here and Whitney said, so I'm listening to Andrew A's talk right now for the second time. Andrew A has a, an episode called, uh, Oh, General Patton. Oh, I can't even remember what the name of it. Anyway, just look for Andrew A in case you're curious about it. So I'm listening to Andrew A's talk right now for the second time, and I appreciate it so much. I can really relate to having the committee in your head and having to struggle with that lady. I love how he brings so much humor to it all. And I want to emulate that in my recovery. Thank you, John and Andrew, for his share. It's such a beautiful day to be sober. And then Dawn replies to that. And she said, she's talking about what he said in the podcast. And she said, I loved a saying I once heard in a meeting. Half my brain is trying to manufacture bullshit. And the other half is trying to buy it. (laughs) I get it. All right. Anyway, now Robbie writes in on Instagram and Robbie says, I just listened to Megan takes a holiday from drugs, which is another one of our episodes. Another story that has really helped me. My sponsorship family mainly is from guys who live in a sober house a few blocks away. I live on my own with my dogs, but I use the house and the group as if I live there and stay accountable in that way. The guys who live there are some of my best friends. Man, John, this podcast has been such a blessing to me. I have been working on my four-step chunks at a time. It's really opening my eyes to how much I am my problem. Thanks for your podcast. God bless you. Well, Robbie... My goodness, I love it when I see the lights come on like that. You know, so many of us for so long, so many years, walk around pointing our fingers or trying to figure out how other people were wrong, and we never get to that point of saying, I've got my part, and I'm glad the light is coming on for you. All right, last but not least, Nicola writes in on Insta. Don't I sound cool when I say Insta? Not Instagram, but I'm like one of the the cool kids at school. Nicola writes in on Insta and she says, John, you are hilarious. I'll look them both up. Oh, she was talking to me about she wanted to look up some... um, 
episodes where I was actually the guest on the podcast as opposed to the as opposed to the host and and I gave him though I gave her those and I said uh, hey if you're a glutton for punishment here they are you can go listen in so anyway she says thank you so much John you have helped me so much with my sobriety more than you could ever know I love your calm nature the way you interact with your guest when your family is in the room laugh out loud the moment your son got up and hugged you during your podcast. Wow. Thank you so much for what you do. Nicola on Insta. Well, you know, I love that too. I love hugging my kids. I love being around my kids. They are the light of my life. And I want to let you all know out there, I'm not a perfect parent and I don't have perfect kids, but You know, we're trudging through this thing one day at a time, and I've been given some tools in sobriety that I never had growing up, and I'm so thankful for that. Love you guys. I may be back next week. I may not. I got to take this one week at a time. God bless you, and uh, keep coming back. It works if you work it.